0: good morning ladies what a pleasure to be with you today and i hope you'll pardon my tardiness they went down to one lane on the curve from highway 10 down to 35 and we just got to sit there for a little while so the lord had me practicing peace and patience on my drive (laughs) So, it is a pleasure to gather with you today. My name is Amy Catterson, and I'm so glad that you are a part of our study in the book of James. Perhaps you feel, as I do, that our time in this brief, power packed little book of the Bible is sort of like an aerobic workout for our souls. As we have already seen in the first few weeks of study, James is not filled with thoughtful contemplations or theoretical questions. He brings the hearts of his readers, both in ancient time and us today, straight into exercising the essentials of the Christian life. And we know that a physical workout can both stretch and strengthen our cardiovascular system. And in a similar way, walking through this book of the Bible with the training and enabling of the Holy Spirit will strengthen our hearts and faith as well. So let's pray, and we will look together at today's passage. Father, how good you are, how faithful and true, how kind of you to reveal yourself to us in your word, and how much you have to help us as we seek you in these truths, your revelation, your Son, your Spirit. Would you make us aware of your nearness, even as we think together over these challenging passages? Thank you for these women, and I pray that you would be honored in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the main point that I see in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, is this. God's grace, given through the implanted word, must actively shape our hearts to reflect the self-control, mercy, and holiness of Christ more and more. You'll find that on your handout, and you'll also find the three general points that I see in our passage. Part one, verses 19 through 21, be hearers, receive with meekness. Point two, verses 22 through 25, be doers, persevere in obedience. And part three, verses 26 and 27, be true. Test your faith. Let's read the opening section together, James 1, 19 through 21. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. It's hard to imagine a more universally compelling and convicting call than this opening verse of our section. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. With incisive clarity, James puts his finger on an area of universal practicality, our tongue and our temper. This topic is addressed only briefly here, but as Brian Tabb pointed out in our introductory session, this is a major theme in the book of James. He will circle back to the tongue repeatedly in every single chapter of this book. And I want to encourage you to be on the lookout for all those additional references to the tongue. You might even sketch a little pair of lips where you notice it appearing again. At my rough count, I observed at least 10 specific instructions and warnings about the tongue in the remainder of this book. So this is important. James' encouragement toward quick hearing and slow speaking reminds me of Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But why would this be so? We might reflect on some of the teaching of Jesus on this important theme. Speaking to the Pharisees, he said, You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, 34 and 35. Even as new creations in Christ, we are prone to unworthy words. But the leading exhortation to be quick to hear, slow to speak probably isn't concerned merely with reducing the number of words we express. There is a certain demeanor, an outward orientation, required to be a really good listener. Have you ever been in a heated conversation with someone where you spend all the time where they are talking plotting out exactly what you're going to say as soon as they take a breath. And maybe they were doing the exact same thing, which kind of propels you forward into the frustration and anger James talk about talks about next. Really hearing others is costly. It costs time because sometimes people have a lot to say. It costs pride because it is an acknowledgement that maybe what we think is not the most important thing to share right now. If we become those who are quick to hear and slow to speak, we may follow up someone's tirade, not with a tirade of our own, but maybe with a question to gain deeper understanding. There are times when being quick to hear may feel too hard. But let me remind you, as James has reminded us, that we are a people who are heard. We are invited to come to the Father with our cares, with our need for wisdom, and he hears us. There is a safe place to pour out our hearts. As Psalm 62 says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Slowing down to listen and slowing down our speech are a manifestation of gentleness and self-control. And that same fruit of the Holy Spirit will have a trickle-down effect on our emotions and heart. As James says, Be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We might remember here the strong exhortation of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 5:21 and 22. That is not the path toward righteousness. On the contrary, Proverbs 16:32 says, "Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city." Do you see those parallel expressions, slow to anger, and he who rules his spirit? Our emotions, similar to our words, need to be guided and held in check with a firm hand. That is a wildly unpopular view today. But to disregard it is to saunter down the wide path to destruction. For Some additional helpful teaching on the wise use of emotions, I commend Lindsay Osborne's session from our Proverbs study this summer. And you can find that in the podcast archives. The need to put to death the sinful old ways of the flesh and to receive others with a humble heart leads us right into our next verse. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The language of put away is used elsewhere in the New Testament to show how our words and actions must reflect a change in our wardrobe in Christ. Colossians 3, 7 and 8 says, In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And the passage goes on to show us what the new clothing is. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Colossians 3.10. The humility and meekness with which we hear one another also clears our hearts to hear the most important voice of all, the implanted word. Do you remember God's promise in Jeremiah thirty one thirty three? But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. James reminds us, he has done it! This implanted word, not just written on external tablets of stone, but received by faith into the hearts of his people, is able to save our souls. And we are to hear and receive it with meek, receptive hearts, made new by the Spirit. So James has spoken some tough, practical words to us about how we need to hear, really hear, not only one another, but God himself in the Word. But he does not leave us there, happily reading the scriptures and checking it off our list. In this spiritual workout... James is going to take us up another level. Let's move on to the next section, starting in verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Wow. If we thought that opening section was challenging, this ratchets it up another notch. And I think we can all recognize why this command is so essential. Perhaps especially at a church like this, where we put a strong emphasis on knowing and studying God's word. We might invest hours each week studying, indexing our Greek terms, and cross-referencing with joy. But if that is as far as the word goes in our life, we are deceiving ourselves. Study of the word that does not translate into obedience is a facade, a way we can fool ourselves. Here James gives us another brilliant word picture to show just how foolish such Empty study would be. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Verses 23 and 24. So let's think for a moment. What is the purpose of a mirror? For the readers in James Day, a mirror would not be a clear, reflective glass hanging on every wall of the home for decor purposes, right? At this time, a mirror would be a highly burnished metal, which would provide a reflection of your image, visible as you peered into it. And if someone were to intently look at his natural face, What would he be looking for? What would he be seeking? We generally review our appearance in the mirror to expose if there are any glaring problems that we might be wise to address. (laughs) And maybe you have had a day like me where you were in such a flurry of activity all day that it was quite late when you caught a glimpse of your reflection and thought, wow, is a very interesting hairstyle I have been sporting. Or, oh dear, look at that little remnant of a spinach salad in my smile. right? How foolish would we be at that point to take a good look in the reflection of the mirror and yet take no steps to resolve any issues that we observed. The mirror would have done us no good. Here is where James provides so apt a comparison for our study of God's word. Does the Bible have a revealing function, similar in some ways to a mirror? It certainly does. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joyance and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As we spend time meekly receiving the word of truth, we encounter a call to change, to trust and obey. Have you already experienced this in our study of James? I have. I read exhortations like, Consider it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds and then take a good look at my heart stuck in traffic on the curve of highway 10 and can see a mishmash of anxiety and frustration and grumbling this is like getting a clear glimpse of my image in a mirror and recognizing a need for some touch-up work at that moment of realization We encounter a crossroads. Will we close our Bible, check Bible study off the list, and proceed with our day's activity, ignoring the conviction and the invitation to change? Or will we prayerfully seek to act on verse 25? But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I love the way James gives us two more beautiful expressions of the Word of God here, calling it the perfect law, the law of liberty. For these early Jewish Christians, the scriptures that they had in hand to look into would have been the Old Testament. Yet they also had the interpretation and perfection of the law in Christ. Remember how he explained that in the Sermon on the Mount? That he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then not only that, but Further, he provided the spirit of truth to bring understanding and enabling for his people. So the law no longer merely condemns us for our failure. Now it is a law of liberty that leads us in the way of freedom and joy. As 1 John 5.3 tells us, his commandments are not burdensome. On the contrary, they are the words of life. The rest of verse 25 calls to mind another theme from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Matthew seven twenty four through 27. Jesus' word picture is powerful He says that the outcome of hearing and doing will be a house steadfast in a storm because it is founded on a rock. Does that ring some familiar tones from James 1? These believers, encountering troubles of many kinds, are invited to build their life on a steadfast foundation By acting on the Word of God. And we are exhorted to obedience as the sure path of blessing. Perhaps not immediate relief from the storm, but the ability to stand fast in the midst of it. So, how do we grow in being doers of the Word? Surely a first step is to seek consistent time in the word so that we can receive the illumination and the heart correction that it provides. Another habit to consider is taking a bit of the word with you into the day, maybe on a note card in your pocket, or seeking to memorize a verse of scripture, or posting a little uh, passage on your mirror where you will see it regularly. And when you feel the Holy Spirit's quiet voice of conviction or instruction, plan a first step to obey. Maybe it will feel pretty small and insignificant. Yet as verse 25 declares, God loves to bless our smallest steps of trusting obedience. And he is with us to provide the resources for our walk of faith. We do not strive in our own strength. So to review the progression of our passage, we'll reflect on our outline. We have point one, be hearers. James calls us to be good listeners, hearing one another with a gentle spirit and receiving the word of God with meekness. Verses 19 through 21. Point two, be doers. James then hedges us in from a possible error, the temptation to hear God's word without putting it into action. Verses 22 through 25, instead of being a forgetful hearer, he calls us to persevere in doing what God says. And now we come to point three, be true. Test your faith. Here in this final section, I see James hedging us in yet again from another possible error. Religious action that is inauthentic. Or in other words, failure to act in ways that demonstrate true faith. Let's read verses 26 through 28. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue... But deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The word religious in verse 26 is used only here in the Bible. The word is threskos in Greek. And Strong's defines it as ceremonious in worship or demonstrative. We might think of this as a pronounced outward display of worship. So here is a person that is doing a lot of spiritual things and finding their identity in those actions. And yet James gives us a strong word of caution at this point. James declares that this very active, very religious person might be self-deceived, might have a religion that is bankrupt, totally worthless. And he proceeds to point out three essential areas to assess in our life of faith. So let's take a look at these three areas that are central to authentic faith in action. Perhaps it's helpful for us to pose these as questions to assess. First, self-control. Is my tongue bridled? Second, mercy. Do I care for the afflicted? And third, holiness. Am I unstained from the world? James returns to the topic of our speech and he draws a tight connection between our speech and real life-giving religion. Again, we might recall a similar theme from the words of Christ in Matthew 12:36 36-37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. With that standard, the test of every careless word, we might feel like it is time to throw our cards in and go home. But this is the very point at which the gospel gives us hope. Because Christ himself actually satisfied that perfect standard. As 1 Peter 2:22 and 23 says, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued and trusting himself to him who judges. Justly. So we are not striving to achieve God's favor through our speech. That perfect record has been provided in our place. Rather, in our active life of faith, we seek that our words would be shaped or bridled by the Holy Spirit so that they bear the fruit of peace, gentleness, and self control. So how do we make real progress in bridling our tongue and growing in being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger? I'd offer three suggestions as a starting point. One, meditate on Christ's suffering. My quickness to make a retort or harshly reply points out how often I forget the beautiful meekness of Christ. When I am steeped in wonder at his sacrifice for my sin, I will be less exacting and graceless in my words to others. Second, pray before you speak. Conversations may be exactly the place where we feel our need for wisdom. And asking God to provide that word aptly spoken is a good step toward abiding in him and being a tool at his disposal. And third, and trust yourself to God. We try to use our tongues as weapons to fight for our own way. But as 1 Peter 2:23 says, Christ did not Rather, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So in faith, we can step back from exacting our own justice when we remember the judge who will make all things right in the end. Now let's observe the next mark of pure and undefiled religion before God the Father, namely mercy toward The afflicted. Verse 27 calls us to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And this focus on the vulnerable and suffering reflects a thread of mercy that runs throughout the Bible. God's people were commanded in many places in the law to show generosity and kindness toward orphans, widows, and sojourners. Why is this so prominent? It reflects the very heart of God himself. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 68, 5. And every one of us has been a recipient of his life-giving mercy. We were broken and destitute of heart and have been given the inheritance and place of belonging within the family of the king. As 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. A mark of this tremendous grace gripping our heart is that we are invited to reflect that same picture of mercy to those in need around us. Maybe this is a daunting command. How do we love orphans and widows? How do we reflect God's heart of mercy toward those who suffer? A few ideas. First, reflect on where God has placed you Who do you know that is hurting, vulnerable, or lonely? Has God given you a connection with a person clearly in need? With that in mind, consider what kinds of love you are most gifted in. Meals? A phone call? Consistent prayer? A letter of encouragement? financial support. God gifts and enables his body in a myriad of beautiful, differing ways. And finally, plan a first step of trusting obedience. Ask God to help you find one small way to be a reflection of his merciful attention and care to someone this week. So finally, the third mark of authentic faith is keeping oneself unstained by the world. You remember that James is speaking to the dispersion in this letter, and that points to the reality that these are people who have been displaced from their physical home in Israel. But even more than that, all of us as believers are profoundly not at home in this world. As Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And we are called to maintain a purity of heart and holiness of life, free from the stains of worldliness. Looking forward to James 4 4, we read, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Rather than absorbing the perspective, priorities, and pursuits of the world, we are rather to heed the call of 1 Peter one 14 through 14-16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. How do we keep ourselves unstained from the world? Consider the voices you receive in media, entertainment, news sources, literature. Are we giving the microphone of our thought life to ungodly and unbiblical voices? Also, consider the investment of your time, money, and resources? Are you valuing the things that God values in the way you spend your life? And finally, prayerfully seek God's finger of conviction in your heart and talk to a friend about these matters. We gain clarity of sight as we receive the implanted word and receive a friend's wise counsel. Reflecting on all these verses might be daunting. We realize that every one of these areas requires supernatural strength. We can't produce this godliness on our own. So let me encourage you with one last workout allusion. Philippians 2:12 and 13 reminds us, "Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So by grace, through the implanted word, God will actively shape our hearts to reflect the self-control, mercy, and holiness of Christ more and more. So we work and we rest in him. Let's pray. Father, what a giver of good gifts you are, from the implanted word which is able to save our souls to the enabling spirit which is able to produce in us incremental growth in Christlikeness. May we ever turn to you, and would you bless and encourage and strengthen these women even today. In Jesus' name, amen.